Hi everybody, welcome back to Ask an Addiction Specialist. I'm Dr. Bob Weathers. I'm happy to be here as your host today as we go on another exploration of uh, concerns that are related to successful recovery from addiction of all sorts. <clears throat> Our focus for the last several weeks and will continue through the next several weeks has been on the topic of shame, specifically inspired by groups that I lead here locally in Orange County uh, that I call my or our unshaming groups. The goal is to find ways to manage and uh, to the extent possible to reduce the negative impact of shame. Uh, as I begin today, I want to invite you to engage with me. Uh, uh, you can write to me and our co-producers, Austin Armstrong and Franz Salvatierra will be happy to forward your questions to me. In the spirit of this topic of talking about shame with the goal of reducing it or unshaming, I also intend today to uh, respond if you should send in questions. I'll, I'll honor your anonymity rather than name your names. In the past, I've named the names of those who have contributed. I very much appreciate that. But I want to invite uh, uh, people who wouldn't otherwise share to do so today. So I will uh, read your questions and respond to them anonymously if that's okay. So I invite you to share any questions that come up. I have a number of questions built through the presentation today. It's going to be an active exercise. You'll need a piece of paper to uh, engage in what we're going to be doing and a pencil or a pen to write. And so I'll be asking questions and inviting your, your responses online. And I'm happy to share your responses. In fact, I would really appreciate it. Um, also, I'd love to know where you're from. I, we have people listening from all over the country. It'd be really interesting just to, to uh, 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 acknowledge where you're from. And if you'll send where you're from, I'll at least name where you're, where you're listening from. Okay, so thank you for joining us. I want you to feel like you can interact with me. I highly value that and, and invite it fully today. <clears throat> Last week, our topic was unshaming and we introduced the idea of self-forgiveness as a daily practice. And we began to unpack what goes into our forgiving ourselves. We're gonna extend that today. And I, I uh, gave mention to this at the end of last week's presentation. Today, we're gonna be looking at shame from five different perspectives and probably as significantly, how looking at shame from multiple perspectives is can actually be of service to us and what should we then do about it. So that's where we're headed today. <clears throat> Again, I invite you to submit questions as we go along. To start with, before we dive into the exercise, let me review real quickly with you. This is something that I do with the groups that I lead. I do groups, in fact, coming from one today, uh, this group was with young men primarily addressing shame. I ask, what is shame? And at this point, we've worked together long enough. And, and if you've been with me during this podcast series, you'll have some, some responses. I'd invite you to share. What, how do you understand shame? What is shame to you? For our purposes today, I'll make a, 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 a quick distinction that I think is helpful. It also helps alert you to the language that, that I'll be using here today. Um, I, I like to make the distinction between when I've done something bad or wrong, or if I've done something to harm you, I should feel bad about that. And that would be guilt, <clears throat> feeling bad about, feeling remorse about having done something wrong or bad. But when it moves across into not just my feeling bad about what I did, but feeling bad about who I am. In other words, there's something wrong with me for having uh, done whatever I've done. 
And if that feeling is an enduring feeling, now we're getting into the province of shame. And that distinction is a critical distinction, and we'll be unpacking that later today as we talk about, among other things, the, the negative impact that has on our general health and psychological well-being. Specifically in the arena of talking about addiction and recovery, I'll oftentimes ask my uh, clients in our groups, what is the number one trigger for relapse? If you're sincere about your recovery and yet you find yourself relapsing, what's the number one trigger? And they know, as we've summarized in previous meetings here as well, that the number one trigger for relapse is stress. That stress can come from the outside. Oftentimes it rises up from the inside as well. And, uh, and then we take it one step further, which gets us into the, the whole arena of shame, is that uh, I've summarized uh, in my groups, and I have here as well, that in a review of 200 studies of stress, specifically stress hormones, that arise in the context of stress. Uh, our body secretes hormones in response to stress that alerts our body, moves us into a fight or flight kind of reaction. The number one trigger for cortisol elevation, cortisol being along with uh, adrenaline, one of the two uh, stress hormones, the number one trigger for the elevation of cortisol is shame. The way that shame is defined in this uh, biological slash psychological literature is this, is on the one hand, it's the fear of being uh, excluded or judged socially, being kicked out of my outgroup, being marginalized. And so it's a threat to that attachment, a threat to that connection that's on the one hand. And the flip side of that is a threat uh, to my self-esteem, how I feel about myself. And they go hand in hand. How I feel about myself oftentimes is mediated by how I am feeling with, with the people that, are, that I care the most about, my loved ones. And if there's a threat to that connection, that goes right into my feeling okay about myself. And so uh, when that's stirred up, either one of those threats or both of them, a threat to social acceptance or a threat to self-esteem, my cortisol goes uh, out the roof and it manifests as anxiety, it manifests as distress. And in the context of addiction and recovery, it will oftentimes lead to relapse as we discussed in an earlier group today, is that, that in the presence of, of that kind of adrenaline or cortisol release, none of us can tolerate that for very long. And for anybody who's experienced relief through self-medicating, specifically through alcohol and other drugs, that'll be the go-to reflex in the, in the presence of stress, in the presence of shame. And so you begin to see how it is that our talking about shame, it's what I specialize in, is working on this because I feel like it's one of the paramount, especially psychological foundations, is to find some way to manage uh, and uh, uh, lessen the impact of shame in our lives if we're going to sustain a successful sobriety. So here we are then with an exercise to start with. Um, I'd like you to take a piece of paper and <clears throat> divide it into half with a line going down the middle and then half with a line going across, across the middle. Vertical line, horizontal line, which will leave you with four quadrants, four quadrants. What I'm doing here is I'm expanding on an exercise that we used uh, earlier some weeks ago in our podcast series. While I'm thinking of that, I want to recommend that you access our archived, uh, all of our podcasts have been archived. Uh, Austin and Franz have those available uh, on our Facebook group here as well as uh, through YouTube. So I want to recommend those resources for you. And uh, uh, in, in one of our earlier podcasts, when we were looking at this same model, we were applying it to addiction, 
how we understand addiction from four different perspectives. Today, we're gonna to apply it more specifically with a laser beam. We're gonna apply the, that same analysis to the phenomenon of shame. So if shame is that feeling that I have that there's something wrong with me, I'm, I, there's something bad about me for having done something wrong, I want to ask you this question first of all, and I want you to answer this in the upper right-hand quadrant. If you have that piece of paper divided in front of you, the upper right-hand quadrant, I want you just to write a sentence or two in answer to this question. I also invite you to submit those questions here online, and you can do that in the chat box with our presentation today. First question is this, how do you think a brain, scientist's, a brain scientist explores shame? Let me help you with that question. A scientist, specifically a brain scientist, looks at any uh, behaviors, looks at any um, uh, functions within the human body, looks at them from the outside, looks at them objectively with various measurements for uh, uh, being able to quantify what's going on uh, uh, in, our, in our experience. And so if you imagine a brain scientist, a scientist who focuses on researching the brain, how would they go about exploring what's going on for somebody who's in this experience of feeling bad about themselves? And just write down a couple of thoughts. You don't have to be an expert in brain science to answer this. Just what would be your thought? How would, how would a brain scientist go about examining or exploring this phenomenon we're talking about? It's an interior phenomenon. How would they, how would they assess it? How could they turn that into numbers? Now, if you've been with us in some of our previous uh, episodes here, podcast episodes, you'll know we, we have discussed addiction from, from a scientific perspective, and today we're looking at shame from a scientific perspective. And one of the uh, implications from prior podcasts is this, is that shame is an emotional response. We've already designated it as, as uh, among the most painful experiences that a human being, that any of us can experience and that those emotional experiences are primarily mediated right between our ears in what's referred to as the emotional center of the brain. Um, more technically, it's referred to as the limbic system. So if we go back to the brain scientists for a second, we don't have to again be experts on brain scans. What we can predict is that, is that in the experience of shame, if you put me in a tube and do a functional MRI, brain imaging, uh, as it's happening, Chances are what we would suspect is that, is that the limbic system, or at least parts of the emotional center, would be activated and visible in a brain scan. And this is what a brain scientist would be interested in looking at, is that when this person says they're in the experience of shame, what does their brain look like? And so we would predict that, and that would be at least one of the questions that a brain scientist would be exploring. And in fact, that's proven to be the case. And to, to thicken the plot just a little bit, one of the things that happens in shame, and we'll be fleshing this out more as we talk today, is that in the experience of shame, the frontal cortex, this part of our brain that is what's referred to as the executive center, it's the part of our brain that thinks, evaluates, assesses, judges, makes long-term plans, connects with others, connects with ourselves. That part of the brain tends to go darker that is the limbic system lights up and the frontal cortex, this part of our brain that in effect is the, is the brakes, provides the brakes on the 
limbic system on the emotional center. Those breaks are lessened and in fact you get a darkening and, and less activation in the frontal cortex. The emotional center in a sense hijacks the frontal cortex as it's activated by strong emotions like shame. By the way, this is very much akin to what addiction does in terms of its effect on the brain. The, uh, this is why the just say no campaign is problematic because just say no is a, is a frontal cortex phenomenon where I'm making a decision to, to uh, change my behavior uh, through my frontal cortex. And addiction, as we now understand it from more the last 20 years of brain scan research, is primarily uh, a subcortical phenomenon. It's below the cortex, and it's in fact located in the reward centers of the brain, which themselves are housed between the ears uh, in the limbic system. And so, uh, it's one of the, it's one of the reasons why there's such a disconnect oftentimes between what I say I plan to do and what I do in the face of addiction. Well, shame has a very analogous uh, um, uh, kind of unfolding in the brain is that shame tends to hijack our higher cortical functioning, our reasoning, and we tend to be left with much more primitive reflexes. Oftentimes with shame, what you get is you get a freeze response where the person just wants to crawl into a hole. I'm not gonna fuck the person, I'll talk about myself, is that in the midst of shame, uh, I'm less likely to reach out to you because uh, because I just want to hide, and that's because the fight, flight, or freeze reaction is so intimately attached to the experience of shame. So if that's how a brain, we're going to come back to this, by the way, but thank you uh, for looking at this quadrant. That's how a brain scientist would go about examining shame. Notice that the brain scientist hasn't interviewed you if you're in shame, hasn't talked to you. It's just examining what's going on in terms of brain functioning while you're in that experience of shame. Now I'd like you to move in this diagram down to the lower right-hand quadrant to ask the next question. How do you think a courtroom judge understands shame? If a brain scientist studies shame from the outside using brain scan technology, how does a courtroom judge make sense of shame or understand it? Again, for any of you that are newer viewers, I want to encourage you to respond online and send your answers in to me. I'll share them with the group. Love to hear from you. Give yourself a, a moment just to reflect on this. How do you think a when somebody does something wrong or bad, something that 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 they feel ashamed of, how does that how is that processed or understood by a courtroom judge? One thing we can know probably for sure as we start to address this particular quadrant, that of the courtroom judge, is that it would be unlikely that the courtroom judge would be moved or swayed or even have much interest in what we just talked about, which is the perspective of the brain scientist. If the brain lights up in the presence of shame, that's all fine and wonderful from a scientific perspective, but from a legal or ethical perspective, which is really what primarily the courtroom judge is going to be operating from, he's going to be far less interested in what's going on in the brain than what happened with the behavior and what are the consequences, the legal consequences of, of somebody having done something wrong, particularly if there's an infraction against established law. 
If, for example, we talk about an infraction in the context of addiction, so many of the clients that I work with have, uh, have gotten into trouble with the law, uh, not only because of the substance, but because of the impact of the substance. So they, uh, many of them have been addicted to substances that are illegal to, to buy, uh, to use, and also under the influence of those substances have, have violated other laws. Uh, I'll just pick one example. Many of the clients I see have lost their ability to drive a car. They've lost their driver's license because they were driving under the influence of a substance. Now the judge is, is going to be very interested in, in addressing what needs to happen to make sure that this person is, is uh, that there's consequence. We operate in this country with a system that's referred to as retributive justice, where there's retribution for the violation of laws. And it can be the loss of privileges, like I mentioned, the loss of a license, or it can be the loss of freedom, such as being incarcerated. The judge is going to be uh, interested in looking at the behavior and what the, 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 the consequences are of that behavior. And at their best, that's where this stays. I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes as I talk about all four of these quadrants that we're looking at to see how this can move even into a more problematic position. Uh, we'll be looking at some of the, the limitations of any one of these positions. And then we'll be looking at one central limitation of all of them, that all of them are vulnerable to them. By the way, each one of these perspectives is valid and I believe valuable. Uh, uh, and so just as with the brain scientist, so with the courtroom judge. The courtroom judge, in fact, sometimes we'll talk about this. How does a judge understand addiction? And somebody once said to me in, a, in, a, in a, one of the, the groups, uh, uh, the way a judge understands addiction is that that's four years. And so it's assigned, it's assigned a sentence, uh, a, a prison sentence, and that's the understanding of addiction. And if you, if you look through the eyes of a judge, that's really what they're interested in, is finding out what is, what is the consequence, uh, uh, what is the, the punishment that's due the offense. I like what somebody sent in. Thank you for sharing this. How do you think a judge understands shame? This individual said, there's a fee assessed or there's a length of jail or a prison sentence. And that's exactly right. Whether it's two years or twenty thousand dollars, there's there's a there's a sentence given in response to that. And the same with shame. If if I do something that's shameful, the judge is less interested in talking about my shame, and certainly not interested in looking at it from a scientific perspective, investigating what's going on in my brain. There will be a consequence, and that's the judge's responsibility, and rightly so. So that's the lower right-hand quadrant. Let's keep moving on. I want you to move now to the lower left-hand quadrant and ask this question. How do you think a loved one defines shame? How does a loved one define shame? Let me uh, spell that out a little bit more here. If I do something that harms a loved one and somebody that I'm close to, if I do something that's hurtful to them and I have remorse for that, how might a loved one respond to that remorse? And specifically around shame, we define shame as not that I've done something wrong, but that I am someone wrong. I am, I am someone bad. And so I want you to reference your own experience to think of times where you've done something, where you've done something to hurt or offend somebody that you loved, and that their response in the context of the closeness of the relationship is to, uh, to, to, to uh, shame, shame you for having done what you did. So put yourself in that mindset for just a second. How do you think a loved one defines shame? I again invite you to share your responses and I'll share them with the group. Appreciate your uh, sharing your responses in our chat, uh, chat box here.
Now, there's lots of possible answers to this question, and we're going to flesh them out uh, over the course of our conversation today to look at some which are more helpful than others. I think I'll start with those which are probably less helpful, but all of us have both committed these and been on the receiving end of these. Uh, and I'm, these are just going to be suggestive. They, uh, there's, a, there's a ton of different responses, all of which would probably be accurate and valid here. How do you think a loved one defines shame? If you or I have done something that's harmed a loved one, then oftentimes in response to being hurt and being uh, 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 offended, the loved one will, will say something along these lines or some version of it, you should be ashamed of yourself. And implied in that oftentimes is if you love me, you wouldn't have done this. So you must not love me. There must be something wrong with you. By the way, what's wrong with you that you did this? All of, that kind of, all of that kind of language is shaming language. It's very understandable if you've been on the receiving end, if you've been on the receiving end of it, somebody just wrote in, shame and guilt are real. They are absolutely real. There is concrete. In fact, I have to tell you that we were talking about this in the group today, is that <laughs> we were talking about someone was sharing shaming messages that he heard growing up in his family. And now as a grown adult, some 20 or 30 years later, when somebody comes even close to saying something like that, it will go into mortal offense right now and activate massive shame in the, in the moment. And we discussed how real this is. In fact, I asked the group, what is that saying about sticks and stones? And everybody kind of shouted out together, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And my response to that is that that's BS. Words can hurt us. They can leave deep scars in our psyche and especially with loved ones. And so there's, you, you could say that there's nothing more real than shame in terms of its lasting or enduring effect. And I'm not gonna be one of those that buy into the fact that only sticks and stones can hurt me. Actually, words can hurt me worse, depending on what, what the content and the tone is of those words. And so you can see how a loved one would define shame. It might be like this. You deserve to be ashamed. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should feel bad. Uh, and, and if you extend that, it's you are bad. There's something wrong with you for having hurt me or disappointed me. Okay, let's move up to the upper right-hand quadrant. Excuse me, upper left-hand quadrant. The upper left-hand quadrant. And for this one, I, 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 this quadrant, I want to answer this question. How do you think a therapist understands shame? I'd be very interested in inviting your feedback. It looks like somebody's writing in something right now. Uh, as soon as I can read it, a little bit bigger letters, we'll be good to go. I, I, this is in response to the last one. I want to come back to the last one uh, where we talked about how do you think a loved one defines shame? And this individual shared emotional pain, anger, confusion, loss of trust. Oftentimes what happens in relationship, and we discussed this in today's group, is that when there's a rupture in the relationship, it's so painful because we're so wired, we're so wired to be connected to one another that when there's a rupture in the relationship, um, it, it'll, it'll manifest as an injury to trust. And ironically, and sometimes really, uh, it's not obvious at all, the person that feels ashamed for having done something wrong, if it moves into shame, will actually look like they don't care. Shame, as I said, is a, is a freeze response. It's a freeze response on emotional expression, among other things. And so what's adding fuel to the fire, somebody's hurt your feelings. They feel ashamed because they're, because they're basically sunk by shame. shame. Shame paralyzes them expressing any kind of remorse. They'll look like they don't care, which just adds fuel to the fire, makes it actually worse. And so the damage to trust for sure. 
Um, we're talking about emotions that once they get going, especially because we're talking about emotions that are not subject to the breaks of the frontal cortex, once those emotions get some momentum, of course they lead to uh, confusion. And in fact, sometimes when we're the most outspoken is where we're the least clear. Uh, this is the way that the psychiatrist Carl Jung talked about complexes. He said, it's where I hold most rigidly to that which I feel most ambiguous about. And that's the way it goes. The limbic system is not all that clear. It's extremely reactive. Like we said, it's all lit up, but it doesn't have access to clear thinking and uh, kind of rational self-assessment. And so it's, it can be quite injurious in relationship when there's an injury and then uh, shame is involved either for the person not expressing, if I'm ashamed for having done what I've done and I'm not able to come to you, that's a problem. And if you're hell bent on shaming me for what I've done, that's, that's gonna probably get me to stop in my tracks. And uh, I speak a lot to men, we talk about this, two very typical responses that men have to shame because shame is such a vulnerable emotion and we're wired and taught not to express vulnerability is that uh, in response to shame, men will oftentimes either aggress, move against somebody, fight uh, on the one hand or on the other hand, distance. And that would be back to the, the distancing or the, the freeze response of shame. There's another comment that's coming, on, coming in. There's an individual who says, I'm working on overcoming the guilt right now. It has been a long road. If, if uh, I'm with you, I'm with you, whoever shared that. And if I can, if, if we can hold to this distinction that we've made here, there's a way that, that shame, I understand shame in this way of defining it. There are different definitions. The way that we're defining it today, shame is by definition a toxic emotion, and it's something that we need to get over. It's something that we, we need to work through. But if we hew closely to the definition I've used today, I want to distinguish that toxic shame from what I call rightful guilt. If I step on your toe and don't have any, if it doesn't register for me that that's wrong, there's no feedback to me, Chances are I'll repeat that behavior. Guilt comes in as a, as a barometer and says, that's not okay to do that. It makes me feel bad. And in my not feeling bad, I do two things. One is that I apologize to you. That would be the goal of healthy guilt. And secondly, I adjust my behavior so I don't repeat it. And so there's a way that we're working through shame here. At the same time, holding on to guilt. And guilt oftentimes will blur into shame, particularly if you've been shamed developmentally. If you've been shamed across your life, it, uh, there's a term in the psychological literature, we say that th this increases one's shame proneness. I'm more prone to shame, hence shame prone, owing to vulnerabilities. Uh, for many of us, that, that has to do with growing up in environments that themselves were very disqualifying or shaming. And we, of course, inherit that into adulthood and it makes us extremely kind of trigger sensitive to any emergence of shame. And so it is a, it's a lifelong battle. And if in the context of talking about recovery, particularly from addiction to substances, it really can be a life and, and death uh, battle because to the extent that I am sunk or bound by shame, uh, paralyzed by shame will be the extent to which my recovery is probably also stalled or at least highly vulnerable. And so what we're talking about here is not uh, just wordplay. It really is significant in terms of long-term uh, recovery. Another question has come in. I love your questions. Keep them coming. This is awesome. Uh, this individual says to make sure that I think I know who this individual is. 
I think he's sitting here in the room with me. Is that you, Austin? If, if it's not you, Austin, thank you for reminding me. I want to invite all of you, uh, all, all three of us, Austin, Franz, and I are all really invested in getting the good word out here about things that can be useful to others. I care a tremendous amount, not only for my own recovery, but for your recovery, if you're in recovery from addiction of any kind, and if not that, if your loved ones are in recovery. I really recommend that you um, share this video with them, please. Thank you for that reminder, Austin, because uh, if you're finding this useful, imagine others in your life that could also find a value and it's easy enough to share uh, right there on the screen. You can press a little arrow and share uh, through multiple media. So uh, I encourage you to do that. Thank you, Austin. So we were asking the question, how do you think a therapist understands shame? Is that where we left off? I think that's where we left off. Thank you. France is my memory here today. Thank you. Be interested to see what you've come up with here. If you have some thoughts about how a therapist understands shame, we just took a little backtrack to look at loved ones understanding shame. Let me respond here with some ideas uh, to kind of place this in the field here. Um, a therapist is, is going to want to understand the, uh, the inner experience, your inner experience of shame. And so their goal is not to punish or to uh, apply the letter of the law to your experience. Uh, their skill set is not in brain science. They may be familiar with it, but they're not going to be doing a brain scan on you if you're sitting and speaking with them. And they're one step removed from being a loved one. I think there's a tremendous amount of compassion and empathy required in therapy. But a therapist has the, I just had a conversation yesterday with a local staff uh, uh, presentation where I was presenting an in-service. And the question came up, how do you distinguish between therapy and friendship? And that's a question that's been asked a lot of me over the years of my teaching and training therapists. And it's a good question, and it's not some kind of hard and fast uh, 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 black and white kind of answer. But generally speaking, a therapist reserves the right to respond to you or to me asocially. And by asocially, I mean not socially. So the way that friends and other loved ones would respond to us as we share our struggles, our plights, our uh, grievances, those responses if the therapist only repeats those responses, chances are they didn't work before. Why would they work in the context of therapy? The therapist reserves the right, in a sense contracts with you to respond in a different way. And so most of us, I'll give you an example. Most of us wouldn't respond favorably to this if a friend asked it. There'll be some exceptions, but remember that there are exceptions. But think what, what would happen if a friend came up to you and said, what is your experience, Bob, of shame? What does that feel like inside? Where do you feel that in your body? Do you have any idea what that stirs up inside of you? Do you have, Bob, do you have memories of shame from your earlier uh, life, including in your childhood? For the most part, we don't give permission to our friends to do that. Many, if not most of my friends are psychologists and therapists, and I don't give them permission to do that. There are exceptions to that, but these are the exceptions that prove the rule. And so a social response is what we look for from friends and loved ones. Doesn't mean it can't be loving, doesn't mean it can't be transformative. But when we go to a therapist, we're inviting them to come in from a different perspective. So how a, how a therapist thinks about and responds to shame is gonna be different in kind than, than probably any one of the other three quadrants for sure. And, and it has its own value for sure. Somebody has chimed in here with a question. 
Therapists understand shame in the context of mental illness. There you go. For example, if, if I have a history of depression, my therapist is going to want to probably inquire into that depression to see what, uh, what uh, a part shame plays in my depression. How, do, how does my depression inform my vulnerability to shame? How does my shame end up activating my depression and so on? So you're absolutely right. The therapist is trained in diagnosis and in treatment. Uh, specifically in treating uh, emotional, relational distress. And so that's their specialty. And they're going to respond with specific language, specific uh, techniques. And that's what we pay them to do. Someone else has uh, uh, turned in a, an answer to this question. How do you think a therapist understands shame? Oh, this is wonderful. What somebody is doing, this is wonderful. I commend this. This person has shared that they want to, um, they want to give back. They want to pay forward uh, after their own experiences. So they've gone back to school and they're within a year of getting a degree uh, specializing in the treatment of substance abuse now that they'll be able to help others. And so you'll be operating uh, with your own experience uh, for sure, as and as as do I, my myself being in recovery, and also with a, a whole set of skills that have been honed over what will have been four years of uh, very advanced studies in the treatment of substance abuse, and you'll have a lot to give from this quadrant that we just discussed, the uh, the upper left hand quadrant, looking at the interior uh, of shame as, as a therapist. Would someone else has chimed in a question? This person says, thank you for breaking down the four quadrants. You're welcome. I'm happy to be of service. And we're not even done yet. Uh, uh, this person says that it helps her to understand what might be going on with her husband. And uh, uh, it helps to adjust your approach. You'll see implied here. You'll see implied here is that, is in, in fact, I'll, I'll, uh, the next question will get right at this. What's implied is that any one of these perspectives is valuable, I believe, imperative, in, and not there's not a one of them that stands alone, is that we need all of these perspectives and more. I've just touched on four different quadrants, four different perspectives, and there are many more that we didn't talk about. I could have said, how does a minister, for example, or a spiritual seeker understand shame? That's just one example. But let me ask the, the, the next question, which we'll get at this. I liked very much what this person said, by the way. Thank you. Education is imperative in our recovery. I fully agree. Uh, what I'm doing here today is I'm presenting left brain information. This is information that uh, I've learned and read and that you have. Uh, and, and we are here in conversation. It's left brain information in the service of right brain recovery because so much of what fuels and feeds addiction is more of a right brain, emotional, deeply personal response. I think that good left brain information, for example, good scientific information can be very, very useful. And I'll tie that specifically into how it can be useful in binding and managing shame in just a few minutes. Let me ask another question of you. Here's the next question. How do you define shame? So take the piece of paper you have, turn it over, and on the back side, I want you to just write in a sentence or two how you define shame. And I fully invite you sharing those with us here. How do you define shame?
you may still be writing and please do continue. I'm going to jump in right now and we'll move with this and finish what you're writing. I hope that in your own definition of shame that you would include some respect for the four perspectives that we've already covered, these four quadrants, and I hope that you came up with some that we didn't. <clears throat> this morning as I was preparing for the day and I was aware of this, this presentation uh, with you this afternoon, I was thinking about I was thinking about shame from an existential perspective. And the way I understand an existential perspective, it's a perspective that all of us take in our lives when we look at what's most valuable to us, um, what gives our lives meaning and purpose. And so I was looking at shame just as I was reflecting on it, uh, getting ready to, to head off the door. What does shame look like from this perspective? I also thought, for those of you that come from uh, an organized religious tradition, uh, every uh, religious tradition has some language around shame. And so how does, how does your religious tradition and your religious experience within that tradition, how does that inform how you understand shame? So you can see that there's many more perspectives that we haven't even touched on, but these at least are suggestive. And, and maybe what we could say is they're the minimal amount. <laughs> this quadrant model is the minimal amount if we're going to give full duty, uh, full attention, full respect to this phenomenon that is so uh, limiting to us in our lives. And particularly for individuals who are seeking recovery from addiction is absolutely pivotal uh, that it be addressed. <clears throat> so what I'm suggesting here is that all four of these perspectives and your perspective added to it which is perhaps some combination of all of these perspectives and more. Each one of these perspectives is necessary, but no one of them is sufficient uh, unto itself. In fact, there's what's referred to as the part-whole error that's been attributed back to the early Greek philosopher Plato. I'm going to pause with Plato. We will come back to Plato. I'm going to tie a Plato string around my finger. Someone responded here, how do you define shame? And their response is, it's disappointing others and, and the loved one and, and one's loved ones. It's losing their respect. Do you see how that when we answer that question, how do I, how do you define shame? That more than likely we go to the interior domain. And this is the domain that, for example, therapists explore at length and in depth. Uh, and uh, I doubt that very many of us think of our what's going on in our brains. I'm asking you to do that today. Uh, we don't have direct access to that. We have indirect access in terms of our feelings and our thoughts. But a brain scientist is going to have to do a brain scan to figure out what's going on with my brain when I'm ashamed. And uh, if any of you are in the experience of having lost privileges uh, by breaking the law, lost freedoms, your mind very well might have gone to that uh, quadrant as well, and you might have included it here. But then again, how shame filters down is on a very personal level in terms of a, a felt quality to it for sure. And as this person said, it's, it's disappointing others. You can see how shame is very much a social emotion. It's in the context of hurting others that we feel ashamed. It's also, as I said earlier, shame involves a threat to social acceptance, which is completely rooted in the interpersonal. Thank you for, for sharing that perspective. It's very personal and, it's, and my guess is that you're not alone. My guess is a lot of us share something similar in our own definitions of shame. 
I mentioned Plato, uh, the philosopher, P-L-A-T-O. He was the student of Socrates and the teacher of Aristotle. So you have this lineage of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle that are kind of the foundations of Western philosophy. And Plato uh, wrote a lot about the relationship of parts to wholes in his philosophy. And from that, we've come up with this idea of a part-whole error. And that basically is, in the context of our conversation today, is taking any one of these perspectives on shame and mixing it up with being all of all of the perspectives. So no one perspective or part equals the whole. And when I take my part, my perspective, and then reduce everything down to it, that's the part whole error. It leads to all kinds of misunderstandings. And I wanna uh, take this into another error. And uh, I think this is really the core of understanding shame. And I'm gonna apply uh, the part whole error to this, this particular issue uh, in just a moment with another uh, diagram for you. But let me discuss, first of all, the fundamental attribution error. We've talked about this in previous episodes here, but, but I wanna underscore its, its centrality in our talking about shame. Um, uh, I think what I'll do is just in a nutshell, tie it uh, specifically into shame. The fundamental attribution error is where I've done something bad so there's a situation in which I did something bad, and then I move the attribution or blame that on something wrong with me. So the fundamental attribution error does, uh, mixes up a situation in which I've done something, which is a behavior which can be changed, and mixes that up with there's something wrong with me for having done it, which when that goes deeply into shame, actually leads me to be hopeless about change. And so the, the, this getting this error corrected is critical. And my way of fleshing it out with all of us today is, is to really underscore this distinction between guilt and shame. With shame, I give up hope because I'm something bad and that something that I am can't be fixed. With guilt, I did something wrong or bad, and with some encouragement and support and some stick to I can change that and not repeat that. And so guilt is a ticket towards freedom, and shame is enslavement. I want to bring up the next diagram, Franz, and this is, uh, I, I'm using the quadrant model here, looking at shame, and at the very top you'll notice here, I hope that you can read this. It's small. <laughs> okay, I hope you can read this. The very top, shame. The, the distinction we just made in terms of the fundamental attribution error is where I mix up what I do with who I am. And so we're, we're putting this, these in, in, uh, as ver they're, they're versus one another. If, if it's something about what I did, that's something that can be fixed. And that's something I should feel guilty about. That's rightful guilt. If it's something, on the other hand, of something that I am, somebody that I am, then there's really nothing that can be fixed, and, and that would be shame. And so what I'd like to do just briefly as we begin to wind up today is look at each one of these quadrants and look at how it's possible to commit this fundamental attribution error um, uh, in every one of these quadrants. It's not necessary, but it's possible to do that. And I'm gonna explicitly tie it into your experience or ask you to tie it into your experience and hopefully share with me here uh, as, as, we, as we begin to wind down. If we go back to the first quadrant we looked at, which was the upper right-hand quadrant, which measures shame scientifically. 
Imagine for just a minute how it would be possible to fall into the fundamental attribution error here, that is, assign a shaming message to the individual that there's something wrong with them and it can't be fixed. How could a scientific per perspective be used in support of shame? Well, I'm going to give you an example that's hot off the griddle because it came from the group that I led right before coming here today. We were talking about genetics, the effect of genetics on susceptibility to addiction. And we had a lengthy conversation about this. And what the latest research, uh, uh, and this continues to be explored in great detail across the world right now, is that there's a 40 to 60 percent heritability of addiction, which is to say that addiction has a 40 to 60 percent correlation or uh, uh, it has its roots in genetics. Now, if I believe that I'm 100% predetermined by my genetics, then there's nothing that I can do, right? So it's kind of good news, bad news. The bad news is that for a lot of the individuals in that room today, including myself, we have a lot of genetic material in our respective families of origin and extended families where there's been a lot of addiction. And, and 40 to 60% of that apparently is owing to genetics alone. If you think about this, that leaves 40 to 60% that is not inherited, 40 to 60% that is not genetic. And so if we're going to be true to the science here, it means that if I've got that kind of susceptibility owing to my genetic background, I'm going to need to be especially careful about uh, my recovery because it makes me more vulnerable than the average person. Uh, if you have a background, as I do, there's a lot of addiction uh, across my uh, family line in all directions. And so it makes it imperative for me to really pay especially close attention. Not everybody has that genetic vulnerability. I do, and you may as a listener as well. But to move from that into there's nothing I can do about it would be a mistake scientifically. It would be taking a scientific perspective and making the fundamental attribution error. Is there something wrong with Bob? There's something wrong with you because you have this vulnerability. Well, there's something vulnerable. But there's nothing, something wrong about you. You're just going to have to make sure to work extra hard on that. So, uh, so that's, the first, that's the first quadrant. Let's drop down to the, next, the, the, the second one we discussed, which is how it is that we're judged societally. I gave the example of the courtroom judge. Now this gets, this is a slippery slope here, is that if I violate the law, I should be held accountable to that. And if I need to pay, for, pay back what I've done wrong, then uh, so be it. But what I find in my work with the clients I work with, and you may find this in your own experience, and I certainly have this in my own, is that it's very difficult keep that judgment, let's say a legal judgment, from going into how I judge myself. And so as I'm judged societally as having broken the law, that's a fact. That's a fact. But then to make the next inference, which is there's something broken about me that's irredeemable, that doesn't heed the spirit of the law, which generally has rehabilitation built into it. Even if I go to prison, it's the Department of Rehabilitation that we're talking about. I'm not saying prison is the best place to be rehabilitated, but it's implied even, even in our harshest punishments. And yet we can take that, and I have done this, and maybe you've done this too, is, is take that attribution and turn it towards ourselves. is that there's something wrong and uh, shameful and we should be given up on. Somebody should lock us away and throw away the key. 
And so there again, you see the move from what I've done, which I should be held accountable legally, turning into who I am, which is there's something wrong with me and I should be locked away forever. Shame uh, promotes that latter message and we must fight that. Uh, the next quadrant, we looked at what happens in relationship to our loved ones. Well, what happens is that we react to one another. We react with hurt and oftentimes in that hurt, we'll aggress by shaming our partner who's let us down. Think of for a second how that's gone for you when somebody's really hurt your feelings. It can oftentimes be almost impossible to resist the temptation to judge. So it's understandable as a form of aggression, but it's not useful in terms of fostering any kind of, of uh, repair, uh, including for the one who wronged us to assume rightful guilt is that as we shame them, it will shut down even the capacity to open the door to expressing remorse or guilt. And so it's very natural and understandable, and we have to fight against it ourselves, is that in relationships with our loved ones to not shame one another. That's where we move from, you've done something that hurt my feelings and I'm angry about that, to you're a no good so-and-so for having done that, and I write you off. You see the move from what you've done to now who you are, and then finally, understood psychologically, this is a tricky one and it came up, uh, came up in today's group, is talking about addiction as a disease, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good news, bad news situation, it seems to me, and we talked about this in the group, is that it can be very helpful to understand addiction as a disease, just as we understand heart disease or diabetes, other diseases that have a, uh, a certain course to them that can be managed medically and psychologically, uh, that has a genetic component to it for sure. It can be very helpful to look at that. And if that helps me to take one step back from my addiction and uh, not assign shame to myself, I think that's a good thing. The difficulty with some clients, and in fact, I had a conversation with a client, a coaching client this week uh, by phone, and this is exactly what we're talking about, is that the, the, uh, the problem with the disease model is that if I'm diseased, it's one step from taking that disease that I have into a disease that I am. It reminds me of years and years ago, uh, 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 in relationship to my first wife, she worked in a doctor's office. She actually worked in the doctor's office of the doctor that I grew up with, and I loved this doctor. And uh, we got married and she was, she was his office administrator. And I remember coming in there uh, one day and it wasn't, it wasn't the doctor, but it was one of his nurses, I believe, who referred to a certain individual who was coming in there. Let's say it was Bob Weathers that came in there, referred to this individual as, if I recall correctly, uh, oh, it, he's, 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 he's a cancer. And I may have misremembered that, but it would be tantamount to saying he's, uh, he's, he's an addict. The, the truth of the matter is if I have cancer, I have cancer. But there was something about turning that into a, he's a cancer. I've heard, uh, I've heard uh, supervisees over the years in psychology sometimes slip with this and I correct it. They'll refer to a client of theirs as being a borderline. Now, I, can, I know that that can be useful as shorthand, but it's a really problematic thing if I start looking at my clients as, 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 as labels. And I've even heard it worse than that. I've had... I've had 
some individuals in supervision that would refer to a client as my borderline. This is my borderline. You know, my narcissist. I think it's really problematic um, to, to assign that kind of label to an individual because it's very difficult uh, uh, if you're that individual to not internalize that as being a shaming message. And I don't think it has to even be named to be felt, if you know what I mean. You can tell when somebody looks at you through eyes of understanding and compassion or through eyes of analysis, dissection, and diagnosis. And the latter really uh, almost guarantees shame. So I think it's incumbent as we look at addiction from a psychological perspective to look at it with, with uh, real care to make sure that we don't get too concretized about our diagnoses. Then now the truth of the matter is that you and I can do all of these to ourselves. I can be the worst courtroom judge of myself. I can look at the scientific literature about brain scans and genetics and I can judge myself as being hopeless. I can feel what it feels like to have disappointed or hurt a loved one and judge myself as being a lost cause. I can look at myself in the, in, in the context of my addiction or my history of stress or even trauma that precedes that and also shame myself. I'm going to share with you a little secret. Over the years when I've been inclined to judge myself and then sometimes been further inclined to project that onto other people judging me, this is what I tell myself and I found it useful and you can, um, you can chew on this and see if you might want to modify it for yourself. I will address a question that's just coming in just a second. Um, it helps me to remind myself that if I feel judged by another person, I just say this silently to myself, you do not know the baseline from which I come. And for me, rather than that being a hopeless situation, looking at the difficulties I've come through and what I'm doing to transform those in my life, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and, uh, and, and I'll make some more, but the work that I'm doing and have done, the progress that I have made in terms of the baseline from which I come is so enormous that I don't want to ever forget that even in the face of making mistakes. And so I'm not talking about excusing mistakes, for example, harming somebody else, uh, most of all, unintentionally. I don't want to make excuses for that, but at the same time, if I go down the sinkhole of shame, then I'm back to square one. And so if you can find some way to extend grace to yourself in terms of your baseline, whether it's physiological baseline, legal baseline, relational baseline, psychological baseline, uh, I hope that you can find some use in that. Someone's extended a comment or a question here. This person said, mindful med meditation practice helps me. We judge, that's what we do. We are human. Very good, very good. For any of you that are interested, we have several podcasts, including with our guest Scott Killaby a few weeks ago, who is a world expert in mindfulness, where we discuss exactly this, is that in mindfulness meditation, where basically I step back from my experience and just observe the flow of thoughts and feelings that arise, sensations that arise, is that some portion of those are judgmental thoughts, for sure, for sure. And the, uh, you'd say, well, what's the joy in that? Well, there's a freedom, there's, excuse me, there's a freedom in that insofar as I can experience those thoughts and not get lost in them, actually observe them. They tend to kind of generate themselves. And if I cannot attach to them, not follow them, which is the essence of mindfulness practice, they actually will cross the field of awareness and recede only to reappear at some later point. But with, with consistent practice, they actually lessen in intensity as well as frequency. And so... 
It is who we are. It is what our brains do. Our brains are evaluating mechanisms, especially our frontal cortex. And when that gets hijacked by psychological hurt, trauma, loss, um, injury, uh, it's a deadly combination. And so mindful practice, mindfulness practice is one way for sure of being able to take a step back. And I really encourage you to review those videos as well in our archives. So we finish with this, and the final question is this. How do you define shame? We already addressed that earlier. I want to ask each one of us to make sure as we look at this model, and I encourage you to review this video, share it with friends, review it yourself, review your notes, and uh, uh, make a special note of any way that you may sink into this attribution error we were discussing, where you take something that is true, something that you've done that's wrong, if it's in the context of addiction and recovery, as the group talked about earlier today, we've all done things that violate our own sense of right and wrong in the context of addiction, and we certainly have violated others, is that there's no disacknowledging that, and there's no value to disacknowledging that. But is there a way that I can hold the wrong that I have done in proper perspective, which is what we're calling rightful guilt today, so that I might mend and repair not only what I've done to others, but also mend and repair what it is that I did wrong to start with it within myself. And that's a process of healing that we can all engage in, but we can only engage in that insofar as we're free of shame. So there you have it. Five different perspectives on shame and what we can do about it. The most important thing we can do about it is root out this attribution error, root out shame so that we can stick with that which that can lead us to productive growth, which I believe is rightful guilt. Um, who would have ever thought that guilt would be freeing, but it really is freeing, especially when you look at the enslavement that is compared with, with, with shame. Uh, any final comments or questions I invite you to share right now as I begin to wind down. I want to thank you for joining me uh, wherever you are across the country. Appreciate it very much. I'll be back next week and would love to, to have you join me then. What we'll be doing next week is going in depth in the upper left-hand quadrant, the psychological sector where we looked at how would a therapist define shame. We're going to be going uh, much more deeply into that quadrant because my guess is when you answered how you define shame, probably a good bit of it had to do with how what your own inner experience of shame is. And so I'd like to, I'd like to uh, go more deeply into that next week, including looking at the roots of shame in terms of our personal development. So that'll be our topic next week. Please come back and join me. I want to invite you to continue to send in responses uh, to, uh, to our Facebook group here. You can go online and respond to our YouTube uh, videos if that's where you want to access videos. You can also go to Beginnings Treatment Center has these videos stored there. You can also go to my website. Uh, it's www.drbobweathers.com and uh, you can respond to me directly there and I will and I will and I will be happy to correspond with you I mentioned uh, 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 my website because it's a uh, it's another set of resources for you our podcast that uh, Austin and Franz and I have done here I hope will be of service we've covered a lot of ground over these first few months together with a lot more to come and I uh, would love, uh, love you to access these, uh, consider these as resources. I'll tell you what, when I have clients reach out to me who are interested in recovery coaching, the first thing I do is I recommend that they access these archives because there's so much information here that's chock full of applications to recovery. The same with my website. So go to my website and you'll see that I've got lots of, for example, lots of blog posts into what we're talking about. I've got a book that I'm finishing up right now. The title of it is Unshaming. It will be about this topic and we're, we're working on that 
that right now. So thank you very much for joining. Hope to see you next week. Blessings to all. Take care for now. Bye-bye. Thank you.